Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of debt, Neil Garfield. Hi, this is Neil Garfield. This 10th day of June 2021, broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. Stop thinking about Perry Mason, where you get six minutes of courtroom drama and then an exciting conclusion. Trial law is like surgery. One key error of the surgeon can cost the patient his or her life. One key error by the trial lawyer can cost the client his or her home. Some errors are really inevitable risks associated with the procedure. There are no guarantees. Like surgery, there is a certain protocol or order of things that must be followed in the courtroom. The surgeon develops a surgical plan before operating. Lawyers prepare a litigation plan. At least they do that if they are actually trial lawyers. Both the lawyer and the doctor require specialized knowledge of what is likely to work, and they are required to perform specialized research into the risks of alternate plans and decisions about what should be plan A and what should be plan B. The surgeon or his medical professional cleans the wound before cutting. The patient is anesthetized before cutting. The patient is put into the best possible position on the operating table before cutting. And like everything else in life, there are risks of loss even when the best surgeon uses the best protocol. In litigating a foreclosure case, the same structure applies. There is a procedure or protocol to every case in litigation. And in all cases, preparation and research is required. If you don't do it, then what you are essentially doing is walking into the courtroom unarmed. The lawyer does the research, thinks about the case, that's called analysis, prepares the plan, drafts the initial document, plans out discovery, plans out motions, plans out how he'll deal with objections in discovery, and plans out his goals at trial so he or she is ready with the necessary objections, testimony, and argument. Surgery follows standards that were established long before the patient was ever diagnosed. In the insulated world of the courtroom, the standards that are applied 
were established centuries before the client was ever. Protocols are complex and consist of nuances known only to those who use them. Flexibility of those protocols is very limited. In an orderly society, those standards are memorialized in written and unwritten rules, laws, customs, and practices. The goal of having courts is to put an end to disputes, regardless of whether the claim of the defenses have merit. The method by which disputes are resolved is determined by law, and it still is even in foreclosures, despite many people saying it is not. It is not some magical mystery tour where you can invent things and hope that the judge or jury will figure out how to rule for you. It is all about how the state will allow the dispute to be resolved. It is all about what the judge must consider and must not consider. Any admission against interest disposes of at least part of the truth of the matter that is in dispute. So let's say your position in court is that you didn't run a, a red light. So if you go into court and you've already admitted the light is red, then the judge may not admit testimony or other evidence showing the light was green or yellow. I have a friend who sat on the bench down in Broward County, Florida. When he was assigned to traffic court, he said he found out that all traffic lights are yellow. But once the defendant admitted it was red, then there had to be some other defense or the defendant would lose. There is a logic to the laws governing litigation and trial procedure, which is often based in fact. But those who really know how to apply those protocols also understand how they can be twisted away from the facts, away from the facts instead of toward the facts. And that's the problem for the homeowner. Ignorance of those protocols is no excuse, and those protocols can kill your chances of winning in court. If the initial cut by the surgeon severs an artery supplying blood, nutrients, and oxygen to the brain, there are only a few minutes to correct the problem, if it can be corrected at all. An initial error by the trial attorney can sever the chances of ever winning the case, especially if there is not an immediate retraction or... Uh, amendment to whatever has been filed or said. In foreclosures, the trial lawyer is often the homeowner without a lawyer because very few lawyers can be found to take these cases, although I am finding lately that there are more and more lawyers who are starting to pop up because there's more and more cases uh, in foreclosures. The problem, of course, is finding a lawyer who thinks he can win the case as opposed to finding a lawyer that can merely justify the fees paying, paid to him or her 
by producing the number of hours that were spent in performing paperwork or other functions. You want somebody who believes that they can win the case. And that's only a trial lawyer who has planned out the litigation. The fact that there is no underlying obligation, that there is no claimant or creditor, that the servicer is not really a servicer, etc., none of that makes any difference unless the trial lawyer goes into court with a plan. So the defense narrative, if it's only being litigated by homeowners themselves, pro se, or in pro per, the defense narrative is never fully developed. That means that at the outset, the artery is cut. The litigation plan is never even considered, much less decided upon with various alternative plans based upon inevitable obstacles that appear during litigation. And the most common mistake in referring to a servicer is referring to a servicer simply because that is how they were presented. So homeowners get these notices and letters and stuff from a company claiming to be a servicer. It's got the letterhead on it, almost never signed. It refers to the team or the company or whatever. And many times the homeowner doesn't even know why they got this particular document. And the reason is simply to establish in the homeowner's mind that this company is a servicer. What is a servicer? Servicer is a company that takes in payments, deposits it into its own accounts, therefore is qualified to make data entries based upon its receipt of that money and then disperses the money according to the contract with the creditor. As anybody who knows who's been reading my blog, those functions are not performed by any company that that is claimed to be a servicer. And in fact, most of those notices and letters are produced by third parties who have been given the right to simply use the name of the company that is claimed to be the servicer. It's the exact same scenario as what happens with the so-called trustee of a remix trust. The trustee is not even permitted to know the contents of the trust, much less manage it. The servicer is not even permitted to know the contents of any depository account, even though the checks were made out in the name of the, the, the company that is claimed to be the servicer, but it, those checks were deposited into an account that is owned, operated, and maintained by people who do not answer 
to the company claiming to be a servicer. The difference between the logic of the courtroom and common sense is the difference between night and day. Many homeowners complain about what happened in court. And basically what happened in court was for the most part, not always, but for the most part according to the protocols. Many people have taken my work and asserted that the designated named claimant or plaintiff or beneficiary is not present in court and theoretically they are right. It follows by simple logic that if the designated named claimant is not present in court that in judicial foreclosures there is no plaintiff and in TRO actions by homeowners in non-judicial cases there is a default not by the homeowner but by the entity named as the beneficiary under the deed of trust. The biggest problem I see is the mere reference to a servicer. It severs the artery that gives life to your defense. The issue of who is appearing is more subtle than what people perceive. When the lawyer shows up on a pleading, he is presumed to represent the named claimant or beneficiary or or plaintiff uh, under the deed of trust. This leads to the presumption that the named claimant exists even if they don't. And it leads that further leads to the presumption that they made its that that named claimant, even though it may not even be an entity, has made its appearance in court through counsel simply because an attorney said so. After all, why would a would a lawyer file a legal action for a claimant that doesn't exist on a claim that does not exist? The answer obviously is money and lots of it. But those presumptions, while rebuttable, are conclusive in the early stages of litigation. And it is the homeowners themselves that usually seal the deal in favor of the foreclosure mill who filed papers to start the foreclosure. In most cases, homeowners simply do not defend at all, believing that they are in default of an existing obligation owed to an existing claimant. And, of course, they have no knowledge that their obligation has already been extinguished on the records of any company that could have otherwise had such a record. Nearly all of the remaining homeowners who attempt to, to raise a defense, which is less than 4%, of all those who are faced with foreclosure, fail to challenge the initial labels used by the foreclosure mill. None of them are true. None of them. The lawyer has never had any contact in most instances with the named plaintiff or the named beneficiary. The named plaintiff or named beneficiary is more often than not not even a legal entity. And the even if the named plaintiff or beneficiary under a deed of trust did, does exist, 
that doesn't mean that it has paid value for the underlying obligation, which in turn means that if they haven't paid value for the underlying obligation, they don't own it. If they don't own it, they can't claim a loss on it. That's how it works. The moment you refer to the servicer, you are legally admitting that the company is a servicer and that it represents the creditor claimant plaintiff. And that means you have admitted that the claimant, even though it doesn't exist and there is no claim and it doesn't own a claim, you have admitted that 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 name is a creditor. You have given it life. You have created a legal entity for purposes of the courtroom. The appearance of the attorney is the appearance of the designated named claimant, even if it does not exist. And while there are theoretical ways to attack the attorney's authority to represent a claimant who you say does not exist, the real and most effective way to do that is pretty far down the road of litigation. Doing it up front has no practical usefulness in my experience and in reviewing hundreds if not thousands of cases. That is one of the many reasons why I've decided to put my energy behind a petition for changes in the rules, forms, procedures, certifications uh, that are used in starting foreclosure proceedings within the context of securitization. And I invite the listeners to this program to join APON, the American Property Owners Network, which is doing the fundraising to hire lawyers and paralegals to get this petition done, starting in Florida and then proceeding to California and other states. Neither the courts nor any homeowner should be waiting to the end of litigation only to discover that the case was completely unfounded and filed on behalf of of any entity that does not exist on a non-existent claim, or at least a claim that could never have been proven. Shouldn't have to wait to the end. That should be happening at the front end. And if we change the rules, change the pre-approved forms, change the requirements of certification, and change the procedures, a function of the Supreme Court of each state, then virtually all the foreclosures would either terminate because they were unable to allege that they are the owner of the debt, that they're a creditor, and that they're suffering injury as uh, as a result of loss, which was caused by the homeowner not making a payment, and therefore they didn't get a payment, and they lost money. But that is the current state of our rules, laws, procedures, certifications, forms, and judicial doctrine. It's wrong, but it is law, which means we must follow it or suffer the consequences. 
all the lawyers, forensic auditors, paralegals, and pro se litigants who thought they had a better way to do this have lost every case they ever defended. At best, some of them managed to get a modification, which in essence gave life to a loan that, that did not have an obligation and then created a new obligation to a new lender, namely the company that is claiming to be the servicer who in fact is acting at that point as agent for yet another sham conduit who is controlled by but not necessarily owned by the investment bank that started the scheme in the beginning. It is only the lawyers and pro se litigants that follow and enforce compliance with the law that win foreclosure cases. And many of them do. And as many people have noted, the homeowner tends to win in the end if the homeowner starts early in developing and pursuing a defense narrative and plan that attacks the very core of the claim against them. The claim against them is for an unpaid debt. The first thing you do is attack the presumption that that debt exists. In the world of securitization, although it is counterintuitive to believe this, the debt no longer exists the moment that securitization took place. Not because the debt was sold, because it was never sold. It's because all the parties got paid. They got paid 12 times on average any money ever paid to the homeowner. So they had no reason to carry a debt, and none of them wanted to because none of them wanted to comply or be subject to liability for violation of lending and servicing statutes. The, the appearance in court of the, of the so-called servicer is the appearance of the named designated claimant. So even though it doesn't exist, the designated name plaintiff for purposes of legal procedure is all present and accounted for if you accept and admit that the company claiming to be a servicer is the servicer. Being present for legal purposes, it can be awarded judgment and it can receive a deed issued from a foreclosure sale even though that name does not exist as a legal entity or person. This sounds crazy, but this is what Wall Street is doing. They found loopholes and they're driving tractor trailers through those loopholes loaded with cash. Contrary to the suggestion that this makes homeowners stupid, which I've heard a number of times, it is, it is not that. It is a contrived loophole that only trial attorneys know about and use in court. And it is the reason why seasoned trial attorneys should take another look at this area of practice, which is already proven to be lucrative for lawyers, 
I know lawyers back in 2008 who made millions and very rewarding in terms of getting favorable orders and judgments from the courts. The takeaway from this narrative is that testimony documents and exhibits that are not legally admissible into evidence still constantly get entered into evidence and are used against the homeowner as if the truth of the matter asserted has been proven. The reason for that is protocol. According to protocol, it has been proven even though it is untrue in the outside world. In the insular world of the courtroom, it is true. By then, the only way the homeowner could win would be by producing evidence that the homeowner does not have and will never get access to. A lot of my supporters get mad at me when I talk about this. They think that the judge should be suspicious of everything that is produced by the foreclosure bill. I agree that would be nice. But it's not, it is not how the judge's job works, which is governed by established protocol. In most cases, by the time the pro se homeowner or their attorney makes an objection, the admission against interest, namely that the company is a servicer, that's already happened. And therefore, the, there are grounds to overrule the objection. The judge will frequently regard it as a nuisance. The path out of this conundrum is discovery. In any action that is based upon a claim that a debt is due and unpaid, you have every right under the rules of procedure to demand answers as to the current existence of the debt not just the presumed existence of the debt. The answer will surprise you and the judge. You have every right to demand answers and documents supporting the presumed ownership and authority to administer, collect, and enforce the debt. That authority must ultimately come from only one source, the owner of the debt. That is true for the underlying obligation, the note, the mortgage, or the deed of trust. If the name designated claimant is recited as Deutsche Bank National Trust Company, start demanding answers and documents that support presumption of a transaction in which the trustee, DBNTC in this case, or the trust paid value for the underlying obligation. If they can't produce proof, real proof, of the movement of money, then they cannot prove compliance with the condition precedent set forth in Article 9, Section 203 of the Uniform Commercial Code. And that means that even if they had a claim, they can't file it. They can't act on it. And start asking questions about the location and custodian of the accounting records of the trustee and the trust that show the establishment and maintenance of the obligation of the homeowner as an asset owned by the trustee or the trust. The answer will surprise you. It will also surprise the judge. It will also anger the judge when they refuse to produce it. 
even though it is standard procedure that a creditor who claims that they're owed a debt when challenged has to produce the ledgers. And in all cases, there will be a company claiming to be a servicer, which in most cases goes unchallenged. That means you admit that they are a servicer, you admit the debt, you admit that they are authorized by a creditor who owns the debt, and you admit that the name claimant is that creditor. What do you expect a judge to do in the face of such admissions? How could they ever rule for the homeowner? Now, if some company is, claimed to be, is claiming to be a servicer, then you have every right to require testimony documents and exhibits that support that contention. A servicer actually receives payments and actually makes disbursements. Ask about that. The response will astound you and the judge. The testimony and documents proffered into evidence all come from the company claiming to be the servicer, who introduces them as business records that are claimed to be exception to the rules preventing the introduction of hearsay evidence into the court record. What if that company is not really a servicer? All evidence uncovered over the last 20 years points to the fact that they're not. All evidence points to the fact that companies do not handle, receive, or disperse any money from homeowners. Therefore, they cannot, their records do not consist of any entries made by them as to the receipt or disbursement of money. So that's it for tonight, folks. Thanks for joining me. We'll be back next week with more information and analysis on the greatest economic crime in human history. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.